Hey everybody, it's Kai. We're taking a little bit of an end-of-year break, so today we're resharing an episode about one of the biggest stories of 2022, the war in Ukraine, of course. But before we get to that, the other big story of the year was inflation. And here at Marketplace, we are not just seeing its effects in our coverage, you know. Donations from listeners are down, and they are an essential part of our budget. We, of course, understand not everybody's in a position to give right now, but if you are, we need you. Please give what you can at marketplace.org slash give smart or click the link in the show notes. And thanks. Look at that. I got to cue him today through the glass. Jake's like, can I go now? Hey, everybody. I'm Kai Rosdahl. Welcome to Make Me Smart. None of us on this podcast are as smart as all of us. That's not what we like to say. <laughs> and I'm Kimberly Adams. It's Tuesday, which means it's time to dive deep into a single topic or deeper, whatever. And today we're going to talk about one of the main stories we've been talking about, of course, Russia and the Ukraine invasion. It has gotten uh, worse, obviously, on the ground the last couple of days. Um, forces are moving. People are being killed. Uh, refugees by the I think the last number I saw was 600,000 uh, are moving to yeah. the West. Um, so this is obviously a horrible humanitarian story. It's an economic story. It's also a, a story of history, though. Um, this is a land war on the European continent, which uh, I never thought I would see in my lifetime. I don't know. Maybe our guest has a different thought. Um, but we're going to talk about that today and what it means in the context of where we have been. And that guest is Dr. Francis Fukuyama, a political economist and senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford. Dr. Fukuyama, welcome. Thank you very much, Kimberly. So it's been more than three decades since your book, The End of History, where you talked about this idea that the great ideological battles between East and West were, were effectively over. How are you thinking about that, given what's happening today? Well, I think we are obviously in a very different historical period. Uh, the number of democracies has been declining really now, according to Freedom House, for the last 16 years. And this aggression by uh, Russia shows that geopolitics and the overt use of military force has not, unfortunately, uh, disappeared uh, from our world. Uh, so, you know, we're in a crisis situation. Uh, we're at a moment where things could actually go in either direction. I would say that the one hopeful sign right now is this incredible heroic resistance being put up by uh, Ukraine, where uh, they are really facing down uh, a gigantic Russian military machine. And also, I think, by the response of the rest of the democratic world in support of Ukraine, uh, this rallying around and offers to help. So, you know, we'll, we'll have to see which fork uh, of the road history takes at this moment. We had, uh, generally speaking, on the European landmass, uh, collective security and peace for 80-ish years, right? Uh, and certainly we've seen the Western allies come together to a degree that I don't think anybody would have bet on even, you know, 10, 10 days ago, honestly, given how fast this thing has moved. I guess the question is, do you think the days of, of stability and peace in Europe uh, are done? Are we going to have now a period of, of upset and, and conflict, do you think? Well, yeah, I think that really depends on the military outcome here. If Putin is able to 
capture Kiev, uh, you know, arrest or kill President Zelensky and install a puppet regime, uh, and there's not much that NATO can do about it, then yes, I think we are in for further aggression because I don't think he wants to stop at Ukraine. He really wants to undo the entire European, Europe whole and free order that was established after 1991. On the other hand, if the Ukrainians uh, resist him successfully, uh, the world could actually go back to a fair amount of stability because the world's biggest bully has been humiliated and uh, weakened in, in, in lots of ways and there's been a lot of solidarity among democracies. And so that's why right now it's just really hard to predict, you can predict a very bad world and you pr can predict actually a pretty good world. Uh, and I think we'll see within the next couple of weeks which one of those is going to materialize. How much does it matter that this is a land war in Europe in the modern context. And what I mean by that is, you know, last century, you have these big land wars in Europe and they and take the whole world gets involved. Are we still in a place where a land war in Europe brings in the entire rest of the globe in, in the way that it did in the last century or, or previous centuries? Well, I do think that it's very impressive the way uh, public opinion around the world and in the democratic world has uh, shifted. One of the outcomes of the end of the Second World War was this idea that you simply do not cross international borders with big armies in order to grab territory, and that's a norm that's been respected by most countries in that period. And that's why I think Putin's action has come as such a, a, a terrible shock. But I do think that that norm uh, is being reinforced by the reaction of NATO countries and the democratic world, the broader world uh, more generally. I mean, even countries like China and Turkey are looking very shaky in their support for anything that Putin has done because they do believe in uh, you know, the integrity and sovereignty of and the right to exist of, of you know, the world's existing uh, countries. Uh, so it is just possible that that norm will actually end up in, you know, intact and, and even strengthened to some extent because people can see uh, what the alternative uh, uh, is. Do you really think, let me back you up for a minute, do you really think that if he's successful in Ukraine, if he captures Kiev and, and can somehow control what is a fairly large landmass, do you really think he doesn't want to stop there? Well, you know, this is one of those places where you don't actually have to read the tea leaves. <laughs> uh, Putin has been very articulate about what his goals are. You know, he said a few years ago that the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the collapse of the former Soviet Union. Uh, he said in a, uh, in a long article last summer and then again in the speech just on the eve of the war that the entire uh, uh, entry of countries in Eastern Europe into NATO was a big disaster that Ukraine and other parts of the former Soviet Union really are part of uh, Russia. And so I don't think that he... Uh, wants to stop at Ukraine, he really does want to undo that entire uh, uh, order that, that emerged with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the hmm. collapse of communism. And really the only thing that's holding him back is the, you know, what he calls the correlation of forces. And that's to say the correlation really of military forces. Right. I'm going to take another stab at, at the question I asked you a second ago, because I had to think about how to articulate it right. But I guess I'm trying to figure out if we're still in this place where Europe is 
really the center of the universe when it comes to, you know, global conflicts, because there have been plenty of wars in the Middle East and in Africa, and there are a lot of other big players on the national stage. And is is the significance of a land war in Europe as significant as it may have been in the past? Oh, well, in that sense, sure. I think that um, <laughs> Europe is not the center of the world and there's many other things going on. I think one of the reasons that uh, uh, people have paid special attention to Ukraine is that it sets uh, an important precedent for what will happen in East Asia because China is another big uh, authoritarian power that has explicitly said that you know Taiwan is part of China, that it intends to reincorporate Taiwan. And I think that uh, uh, Ukraine may be kind of a dry run for how much resistance there's going to be uh, to you know action happening in that theater. I believed right from the beginning that the biggest challenge to uh, current world order actually is not Russia, uh, but is China, uh, simply because Chinese power is much more multidimensional than Russian power. It's a bigger country and and uh, influential in many uh, other respects. Uh, and but that's not to say that you know what goes on in sub-Saharan Africa is unimportant. You know they estimate that five million people died in the Democratic Republic of Congo over the last couple of decades and. Nobody paid attention and I think that's actually kind of scandalous because African lives are not worth less than European lives or Asian lives or anyone else's. Let me let me draw on your on your expertise in in political economy and and more importantly the 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 economics of the politics of this moment. Obviously uh, in, in the most proximate places, which is to say Europe, this is going to be economically economically problematical. Um, it will have effects on global supply chains and energy and and shipping, and we're seeing you know cargo companies stopping uh, some of their services. Do you expect? Look, war is terrible in any cases. How bad do you think this gets for the global economy in the short to medium term? Well, uh, I think it could be quite uh, severe because essentially uh, the Europe and America are treating. Uh, Russia, like North Korea, really cutting off uh, economic ties, you know, credit cards and payments and the ability of Russian banks to actually do business. And I think it's going to force Russia into the arms of China. They may try to go to cryptocurrencies in order to settle transactions. I mean, a lot of shifts are going to happen. And when a big transition like this occurs, it's very, very disruptive. Obviously, energy is the central theater. I think the immediate effects have been bolstered because the um, Biden administration has been pushing uh, LNG supplies to uh, Europe to make sure that if the Russians, uh, you know, restrict the flow of natural gas this winter, uh, Europe will be buffered. But that's going to mean also then a redirection of the entire global gas market uh, so that people, you know, I think from now on are going to be much less dependent on supply from Russia. And, you know, all these transitions are costly and disruptive and, you know, people are going to notice. Sorry, one, one quick thing about, about this whole chain of events. Um, are, are you surprised and, and look, granted people have been working in the background on this for, for months knowing, given U.S. intelligence and how accurate it has proved to be, knowing that this was going to happen. Are you surprised at the way the global response came together so quickly? I mean, honestly, it happened in like 72 hours, you know? 
well, uh, yes, uh, especially the German response yeah. because Germany had been, in a way, uh, Russia's leading friend in Europe and they had a big economic stake in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And I was frankly quite surprised that even before the big invasion, uh, Germany announced that it would be putting uh, Nord Stream mm -hmm. 2 on hold. Uh, and then <laughs> there's a further surprise when Chancellor Schultz announced that they're going to double the defense budget and, uh, you know, really take seriously the fact that the world can be threatened, uh, you know, with, with military invasion. Uh, so yes, I think that was quite, uh, quite stunning. I do think that it was prepared by quite a lot of diplomacy behind the scenes that wasn't quite so visible to everybody where, uh, you know, Washington was trying to assure the Europeans that they would have their backs and, uh, and that they had the freedom then to do the right thing. How do you see this ending? Well, yeah. Uh, so the worst case scenario, uh, uh, as I mentioned, is really uh, Putin managing to destroy the regime in Kiev. Uh, and actually, I don't. I find it harder and harder to see a good outcome for him because even if he does that and does install a puppet regime, it's pretty obvious right now that the U Ukrainians are going to resist that, you know, tooth and nail, and even a military defeat of their army isn't going to stop an insurgency, you know, guerrilla attacks, assassinations, and that sort of thing. And so I do think that this is going to end up as quite a quagmire uh, for Russia. Uh, you know, in a sense, uh, the best outcome would be regime change in Russia itself. Uh, I think that there is a lot of evidence that most ordinary Russians really were surprised by this war. They don't like it. There have been demonstrations in multiple Russian cities. Even a lot of military people have been showing a lot of unease that this shiny new military that, that Putin built is being used in the first instance against a, a, a fellow Slavic peoples. Uh, and so, you know, there could be important changes uh, brought on by this war in Russia itself. And quite frankly, I think so much of this is about Putin himself and, you know, getting him out of the leadership of that country uh, is really what's going to change its, its course in the future. Let's say, though, that he stays in power and the situation in Ukraine goes back to, you know, status quo ante, right? They get Donetsk and Luhansk and they pull their forces back. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but let's just spitball it, right? And and somehow Putin says, you know what, I don't need a quagmire and he pulls back. Joe Biden and Olaf Scholz, the chancellor of Germany, and uh, Boris Johnson get you on the phone and they say, Dr. Fukuyama, what should our strategy be now for Russia? What do you tell them? Well, I am presuming that if uh, we got to that point, that there'd still be a lot of Ukrainians that want to resist whatever regime is put in place, you know, to rule over them. And there will be a lot of opportunities to support uh, a Ukrainian uh, resistance. And I don't think that we're going to stop doing that. I don't think that Germany and the United States, having gotten to this point, will let Putin walk away with, you know, this kind of an apparent victory. And so you could have a little bit of the situation that happened you know to both uh, russia or to the soviet union and america in mm -hmm. afghanistan mm -hmm. where it looked like they were in control of the country but in fact there was a lot of support for a you know pretty vigorous insurgency coming from the outside and i think that would be at this point more likely than everybody in the west throwing up their hands and saying well putin won so hmm. you know let's just move on to the next yeah. issue yeah 
Dr. Francis Fukuyama is uh, a political economist, also a senior fellow at the Freeman Spoli Institute uh, for International Studies at Stanford. He's an author um, and a, a thinker on, on all of these things that we've been talking about. Dr. Fukuyama, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Hmm. Interesting to have a conversation about this that's not like what happened on the ground today, right? To, to have one of those, let's think big thoughts about this, because that's what he does. That was, I dug that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm still trying to parse, is this, you know, because you, you mentioned this phrase, like the, the, the land war in Europe yeah, and how big yeah, of a deal it yeah, was a couple yeah. of weeks ago. And it's yeah. been like stuck in my head. And I'm really still trying to parse if that matters in the same way that it used to and who you, it matters to. Here's why I think it matters. I think it matters because mm -hmm. a land war in Europe implies the Americans, and I'm going to say this intentionally, a land war in Europe implies the Americans and the Soviets in tank battles on the European landmass, right? That's what it kind of implies. I said Soviets on purpose because mm -hmm. that's the historical reference that, frankly, Dr. Fukuyama and, and the two of us were talking about. Um, and 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 so that's so so that's why I say that. But you know, you you could say the same thing about a land war in Asia, right? I mean, a land war in Asia. Mm -hmm is a very bad thing, whether it's the Indians and the Chinese and what side are the Americans on and what side are the Russians on, you know? Land wars anywhere on a large scale between superpowers, nuclear-armed superpowers, of which all four of those countries are, yeah. right? Us, the Indians, the Chinese, yeah. and the Russians. I mean, it's really bad. And you throw the Pakistanis in there and forget about it. So that's why the phrase land war in Europe got to me. And, and mm -hmm. you know, the question you asked in his response about there's plenty other terrible things going on and Europe is not the center of the universe is is absolutely well taken. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, all right. So what do you think uh, about all of that, about um, land wars in Europe, land wars anywhere? What well, Dr. <laughs> Fukuyama said, Kimberly's questions, mine. Our number is 508-827-6278. 508-UB-SMART. Leave us a voice memo. If you like, make me smart at marketplace.org. We are coming right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. And we are back, and it's time for the news fix. Um, 
Let, I'll go first okay. just because mine is very much sure. related to the question that I asked, um, which is this Washington Post story about some of the media coverage of the invasion and how some of it has just been like racist mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. offensive in the comparisons that people are making because they're trying to talk about how bad it is and for some reason feel the need to say how much more surprising it is to be happening in Europe compared to, say, other countries. There was even a reporter who has since apologized but said, you know, they're not used to seeing this in, air quotes, civilized mm -hmm. places. Mm -hmm. And seeing and, – and I was really struck by – you know, I still follow a lot of people on Twitter from my time working in the, in, Middle, in the East, Middle East, and yeah. they are all very bemused by this, th the coverage and how people are like, oh my gosh, how could this happen? This is so unprecedented. And they're all saying, um, hi, it's been happening to us. Yeah. You, you're caring now, and, and then you have to interrogate why. Why do you care? Is it because geopolitically it, it really does matter for all the reasons that you laid out? Or does it matter because the people in power or the people consuming media or the people in media look at Ukrainians and see people who here's, look like them? Here's, here's another one. Here's another one. The refugees and the people actually doing the dying and the fighting. They're all white yeah. folk. They're all white folk. Well, right? they're not, though. Well, no, I because... mean, look, yes, totally true. And there, <laughs> there are some really good stories, some gripping stories about uh, Nigerians and Africans there to study. I mean, th there was a story this weekend about this woman who was like three months shy of a five-year medical degree, and now she's being thrown out. Yes, totally granted, I'm... but the overwhelming majority and the people who are, are the face of these stories, the people you see lined up at the train stations in Kiev to get out of there, most of them are white, and I think that's why it resonates. No. I probably, yeah. but I'm going to also link to uh, in the show notes. There was a really interesting Twitter thread from a CNN reporter whose sister was trapped in Ukraine, and and his sister is black, and just the various levels of racism mm -hmm. that she encountered trying to get out of the country to the point where she got to a checkpoint to leave the country, and according to his report, they made two separate lines. One for white people oh, and man. one for black people, and yes. the white people were able to go through. And this has been another conversation that I've seen happening is, you know, European countries have been saying for years as this flood of refugees comes out of Africa and the Middle East, we don't have any more room for refugees. Yeah. Our system is overburdened and overwhelmed. But within the space of a couple of days, all of a sudden, there's a lot of room in a lot of European countries for refugees. And you have to inquire as to what's the difference. And, yeah. you know, it's it's a, tr you know, obviously a terrible thing that's happening, but there's these secondary yep. ugly things as well. Totally agree. Okay. Totally agree. Uh, so minor quickies, actually, because that was uh, super substantive and, and real. Number one, there's a great article in the Wall Street Journal about why the United States is still buying Russian oil. You should read that has to do with the Jones Act. You should look up that one too. Super interesting. Also, I just don't want anybody to, to miss that back here, the midterms have started. Today is primary day in Texas. We're off and running and it's going to go downhill from mm -hmm. here. Did you see that Texas rejected like 30% of the yeah. absentee ballots yeah. that came in? Yeah. That's wild. Um, yeah. But just a quick follow-up on the energy piece. I don't know if you saw because it 
came out like a little bit before we started recording that uh, the U.S. and its allies have agreed to release like 60 million yes. barrels from yeah. the petroleum reserves. That's yep. a, a big deal also trying to, you know, be less dependent on, on right. Russia. Right. Um, okay. So that's it for the news fix. Let's do the mailbag. Yep. Hi, Make Me Smart team. It's Brianna from Phoenix. Ivan from Brooklyn, New York. Longtime listener, first time voicemailer. I want to discuss a slightly different, but maybe related thing. Last Tuesday, we did credit scoring. The problems with that whole system had a, a, a super interesting conversation. We asked you to share your credit horror stories, and you did. Here you go. Hi, my name is Bob from Baltimore. A couple of years ago, I decided to buy an app on my phone. It was a $2 app. I accidentally purchased it on PayPal credit and found out that I had missed two payments on this $2 app. The cost of the app now was $6 with fees, which I immediately paid. My credit score, which had been around 847, or almost perfect, dropped 76 points because of that $2 purchase. It's a racket. Wow. It is a racket. Uh, And, you know... Shameless plug here. We're still collecting those stories because we're we're working on some stuff for oh, marketplace yeah. tech about that. So uh, we'd we'd love to hear more more stories. But yeah, that that sucks. I'm sorry, Bob. That's annoying. Uh, okay. A few weeks back, we had an answer to the Make Me Smart question about the National Weather Service weather spotters. Yes. Well, Andrew in Houston wrote in and says. I work for a public utilities company, and we track rainfall levels since it impacts our operations. We get a call from our weather service hub every day asking what our rainfall levels are, and thanks to your caller, now I know why. I just I had no idea. I just thought the weather service and NOAA, I thought they just knew because they've got all this technology and weather and radar and blah, 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 and now it's people on the phone. I kind of love that. Well, did you see the tweet that I posted yes, in, in yes. uh, our Slack? From, so the National Weather Service in Tallahassee had put out a tweet last week that said it's only going to launch weather balloons once a day until further notice starting today because of helium shortages. <laughs> and so I guess they're going to need even more yep, information totally. from you know, regular people and and utilities companies, I guess, uh, because of the helium shortage. Supply chain everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. There you go. This one's you Okay. <laughs> We've been asking you to send us your answers to the Make Me Smart question, and you have been, so thank you very much for that. Uh, that question is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? Please keep sending those to us as a voice memo to our email at makemesmart at marketplace.org, or you can leave us a message at 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Here's today's answer. This is Carol from Amherst, New Hampshire the largest historical district in New England. And I'm calling with my answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is something I just learned recently from listening to Make Me Smart. I heard the term on tenter hooks in an episode, and I always thought it was on tender hooks with a D. (laughs) And I never understood the phrase, but I looked it up, and apparently a tenter is something used to stretch fabric, 
and the hooks are what the whole the fabric in place. I still don't think I understand the phrase, but at least now I'll be saying it right. Have a great day. Kind of love that. That Kinda sounds like that. something you said. <laughs> I, maybe. maybe there, There's actually a word for that linguistic phenomenon, and I don't know what it is when you like make one of those sort of you hear it, but it's different kind of mistakes. I don't know what it is. Somebody out there definitely does. Write to us and tell us. 508. Yeah, make us smart, smart about it. Make us smart about it. <laughs> um, but in the meanwhile, we're done. We're done. We are leaving. We're back tomorrow for What Do You Want to Know Wednesday. A whole lot of you, quite reasonably so, had questions about Ukraine. We're going to focus on that. You do have time to still get us more questions because more questions are better because, you know, it just spreads the knowledge. Voice memos, uh, emails, take your pick. 508-U-B-SMART or um, make me smart at marketplace.org. Make Me Smart is directed and produced by Marissa Cabrera. Our team also includes producer Mark Hay Green. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. And our intern is Tiffany Bowie. Jake Cherry's across the soundproof glass from me in the studio down here. Brian Allison's going to mix it down later. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. The senior producer is Bridget Bodner. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. You know, on that tenterhooks thing, I I think I also thought it had a D, but now that I see that it's a T, it's also like tent, which, you know, stretches out fabric, too. Makes some sense. Although the the very image of tenterhooks kind of does something, too. I don't even know what it is. I'm just saying. It kind of seems like a torture device. (laughs) (laughs) There's the title of the episode right there. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.